I'm Josh Cooperman, and this is Lone Star House of Design, a showcase of amazing design and architecture talent from the great state of Texas. This is a look back at some of the talent making Texas a hotbed for new, amazing, and world-class design. Ann Edgerton is an interior decorator and stylist from Austin, and we spoke about wide open spaces, which seems appropriate when talking about ideas emanating from Texas. Anne has a very unique design signature that maximizes space, proportion, and product blending to create unique environments. We talked about her approach to this blending of large spaces and cozy design, modern lines with rustic materials, cosmopolitan ranches, and living room offices. I think Anne has a unique talent for blending and molding spaces, materials, and color to achieve unique moments in design. I think what designers want is to be able to be like, oh, they're such an amazing designer. They can do any style, you know. But at the same time, like, you definitely want to have your – you want somebody to – I'm not there yet, I don't think. But, like, you want somebody to look at your work, look at a room and say, oh, that's a Axel Vervo room. You know, it's in New York – or it's in the countryside, but you can tell they have their own touch. Do you get do you get more opportunities in Los Angeles, New York, Chicago? There there aren't as many opportunities to get really creative with the design because in many cases, you know, a budget and a client will dictate something very specific, or you're limited. You know, here in Southern California, extremely limited by regulations. Yeah. lot size, home size, uh, yeah. geographic location. Do you find a certain amount of freedom to, to test ideas? Because in many cases, you're not limited by any of those restrictions. Yeah. Well, inside of Austin, Austin is very, very, has tons of regulations. So I would say inside of Austin, you know, I don't know because I've never worked in LA or New York, but I could, I could assume it's probably you probably do have more freedoms inside of Austin, but I still do feel pretty regulated, you know, like with lighting and especially if you're working commercial, there's, you know, you have to have certain type of plumbing and certain size of everything. But I have done projects outside of Austin where it's like no man's land. Yeah. You can do whatever you want, which is crazy. <laughs> pretty nice. It, I, I love Austin. Um, I love I love all of Texas. As a matter of fact, what I what I think is really interesting is how different Austin is from Dallas, and how different Dallas is from Houston. No, yeah, Austin's really weird in in the <laughs> in the best possible way. And I think oh, yeah, I, I I think culturally, it's because you've got a capital city, a major university. Who knew you'd have a bridge with, you know, millions of bats living under it and 6th Street and it's just so, it's eclectic, but it's one of those cities that also really protects its past and its history. Have you noticed mm -hmm. that? Yeah. I, I'm, I'm feeling a little like, oh God, what's happened to our city? Because I moved here about 10 years ago and it's changing so much so fast and I think there is a core to the city that isn't changing. People do try to protect the soul of it, but, you know, it's inevitable with, like, crowding. Like, all the old places I used to go to are now condo buildings. And they, like, name them Towns Van Zandt Hotel or whatever, but you're like, uh, this is <laughs> this is a huge corporate building. You know, you can name it whatever, but you totally, totally, like, 
bulldozed this cool old spot and built a condo. So it's so, it's interesting for me to hear you say that because having been there recently, one of the things that I thought was really cool walking around the downtown area was that it it appears like there there is a maybe I'm wrong about this, but it appears like there is an effort to save some of that historical past. Yeah. You know, I I guess I it's just so crowded everywhere that mm. it's hard to like even just get, you know, there I think there is really, really cool stuff happening everywhere, but it's so crowded that it's hard to just like get to it. But I, I you know, I don't want to be so down on the city. Yeah. I think for sure there is an effort to save to save certain parts of the city and then protect them and then to renew and restore and rebuild old places that have not been utilized. Like the whole downtown library is so cool. The whole sea home district that they're developing is really, really neat. And so I, I whatever things grow, things change. That's great. It's, you know, it's what, you know, what's really interesting. And I, I, as I'm just getting this, it's all a matter of perspective. So, you know, you're in it every single day. So you obviously see the good and the bad. Um, have, having been there recently, but not spending any great amount of time there. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I guess I kind of missed sort of the, the day-to-day what, what happens. So let me back up a second. You mentioned you've been living there for 10 years. Where, where, did, you, where did you start before that? Where were you well, before I that? Grew up, I grew up um, in West Texas, right, in, in a town called Midland, the oil area. Of course. You know? Yeah. So I was born and raised there. And then I went to college in Santa Barbara, California. Mm-hmm. And then from Santa Barbara, I went to Austin. And I've been here ever since. You mean after Santa Barbara, you couldn't just slide right back into Midland, Odessa? <laughs> no? Once I left, I knew I would never do that. <laughs> <laughs> so you've been there, huh? Oh, oh, been there, driven through it. Um, you know, anyone who's ever had an opportunity to drive through West Texas – spending an entire day looking at nothing but but flat lands and flare-ups, right? Yeah, uh, yeah totally, flare-ups. <laughs> yeah. Um, so when you went to Austin, did you know that, this, that, that design is what you wanted to do? No, no, not at all. I had no idea. I studied studio art, and, you know, I was just a typical – open-minded like free-spirited young person i got i worked at restaurants for a long time i traveled i did wolfing for a while in france do you know what that is no it's it stands for willing workers on organic farms and it's it's this really cool international program where farmers hook up with people who want to work and you work for free and you live there and it's just like a cultural exchange kind of thing so that was cool did that and then wait 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 stop Back up a second. It sounds almost it sounds almost like a kibbutz in Israel. What what is that, and how did you how did you get started in that? Well, you know, I it I don't know. A friend of mine wanted to go do it, and I was just working at a restaurant, and I was like, "Yep, yeah, sounds good." I knew I wanted to travel, so it's it's just a really cheap way to travel, basically, because you you just pay a fee to get onto this website, like fifty bucks, and then you get connected to all these organic farmers to whatever country you choose. I wanted to go to France, so. I just emailed, you know, this farmer in the south of France. I was like, hey, can I come for two weeks with my friend? And you get on a plane, you get on a train, 
and you show up in the middle of nowhere and this farmer's there to pick you up and you're like, hey, and then you live with them for however long and then you go online and you find another farm and then you hop over to another farm and you work for them. So yeah, I worked on all of and I built a hay bale house and I worked at an old um, like chateau bed and breakfast thing and did, you know, picked raspberries and cut lavender and so it was it was magical. Okay. Aside from the, the fact that that sounds in, incredibly wonderful from an experiential standpoint, it sounds incredibly dodgy at the same time. <laughs> it totally was. We hitchhiked, you know, we had no money and it was awesome. It was like, it was, it, yeah, totally dodgy. And I have kids now and I oftentimes think of like, <laughs> there's no way I would yeah, let you do this. Like, oh dear God. <laughs> <laughs> But it was so important for my life. Really, very, very cool. Interesting. Okay. So with an experience like that, the one thing that you said in particular, building a hay bale house, Uh um, is so interesting to me, uh, the opportunity to do something like that, because clearly that's not something we we do here in the States often. Yeah, Yeah, it really was. It was, I mean, just... Yeah, we were just like stacking hay and covering it in plaster, and it was a really cool house and laying wood floor. And yeah, it was super, super interesting. So very, mo- very beautiful. Moving back to so when you settled in Austin, did did you know you didn't know when did you when did you start your firm? Okay, so um, so I yeah so anyways, I started a catering business, and I thought that that was how my creative that's you know uh, okay this is my career, but then I, I soon realized that food was making food was not was not doing it for me but what what i was realizing is that i was more interested in people coming together and experiencing something together and the space that they were experiencing it in Mm. so um i just that was like turning in my mind so i started you know just kind of studying spaces and then this old acquaintance of mine moved back from New York to open a restaurant and we recontacted each other at this party at my house. And he told me he was opening a restaurant and I was like, Oh, great. I'm a restaurant designer, which I wasn't, but you know, <laughs> I, I wanted to be. And I was 24, 23. I was probably 23. Fake it till you make it. Right. Yes. <laughs> so he hired me and, um, and that was my first project. And it was like before, Pinterest and before tons of stuff I like cut out pictures from magazines and put together this mood board for him and was like here this is what your restaurant should look like and then we did it and it was really really fun and like from that second on I was like oh my god this is it so and that, I think that was that was about seven years ago but it took a long time for me to be able to earn enough money to sustain myself so simultaneously I was a designer and I managed a little downtown bodega so I was kind of doing a lot for a while so it's here's the thing when when I when I look when I meet a new designer and I start to look at their work oftentimes there are certain things that pop out to me mm-hmm. I don't know if it's if it's consistencies in the work or sort of a styling one of the things that really struck out <clears throat> excuse me one of the things that really struck me was in one of your residential projects you have a very clean modern looking bathroom with with an old cat an old iron tub that's clear oh, yeah. it's clearly not super modern the tub itself it's clearly something that you repurposed and reused and and then i, I started to notice a lot of those themes in your work mm-hmm. 
recycled, mixed, blended. A lot of the things that, you know, have, have been in Southern California for quite some time, but not really noticeable outside, you seem to not only embrace it. I'm curious, is, is this something that sort of affected you when you, when you got to Santa Barbara, or is it something that you've always liked to do? And what was the willingness on the part of your clients to sort of incorporate those elements in your work? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, sometimes like, it's a, like, I don't know how, how my taste evolved, but I have always been drawn to old things. And I think, I I do think that I was very affected by growing up in the desert, that everything was just like dusty and windblown and really, really minimal. And so I'm, I love, I love like empty space, but just with like one big dramatic old thing, you know? And I feel like that's like kind of what the desert is like, just a big old empty desert with a massive tumbleweed inside of it. Um, so I think I think that that landscape I grew up in really affected me. And then I don't know, just the desire for interesting things and not just store bought stuff and the story. I really really love antique shopping and treasure hunting and that you know that feeling you get when you're like, oh my god, look at this thing! Like I've never seen something like this before, and it'll it'll look perfect in this plaster room that we're doing. I'm curious. The level of acceptance with the clients, do you find that many of your clients are native Texans or do you find that many of your clients now are, are moving into Texas from elsewhere? A lot of people are moving in. Yeah. Yeah. But you know what? A lot of them have Texas roots. Like they were raised in Texas. They went off, started their career in New York are coming back. But there aren't a lot of, I think a lot of them have Texas roots somewhere inside of them. They're Texan. <laughs> that seems to be, so it's really interesting to me, and I, I find this fascinating. There are certain places, um, you know, in Southern California, this is kind of like the place where people come to reinvent themselves. Uh-huh, yeah. If you ask around, not many of us are actually from here. Yeah. Um, but Texas seems to be one of those places where, everyone keeps going back. Yeah. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, people come home to Texas. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And and so it's really interesting to me because I think what you're talking about, which really comes out in the design, is that you're taking influences from from elsewhere. You know, I'm I'm as we're talking, I was I spent a lot of time on your website and I was oh. looking at a number of the projects that you've worked on and there seems to be this willingness, you know, it's funny because when I lived in Dallas for, for nine years, if you drive around, you know, it, this is a while back, about probably about 10, 12 years ago. If you drive around Dallas at that time, you just see brick, 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 yeah. brick. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's all, it's all, it's all the same. Um, but I'm noticing that that really has changed in the last 10 to 15 years in, in Texas, the design styling has has really changed a lot. Have you seen Have you seen the changes? And I guess you know you being at, at sort of the front of this. What are you seeing now? Hmm. Style wise, hmm. Let's see. Uh, I mean, lots of plaster everywhere. Plaster outside and inside. People are loving plaster. So it's interesting to me too. There seems to be this major shift away now. The you know you've got that Austin limestone. You've got you've got. Yeah because of the particular soil that is under Texas, 
brick is so incredibly popular, which is why it was such a so prevalent everywhere. And I, there is a conscious shift away from this now, which which is fascinating to see such a large shift. It has nothing to do with style, but one particular type of material. It's fascinating. Yeah, yeah that is really interesting. I wonder. I wonder. I mean, it has. I mean, it's kind of like that with every industry. There's just waves of like, okay, everybody's doing this now. Everybody's doing this. It is interesting where it derives and why it ends at some point. What is the? Um, what are clients looking for? Now, what are your clients asking you for? Hmm. You mean like when they first come to me, like I want my home to feel like this or my office to feel like this? Or? Sort of, sort of, but not really. So one of the things that, that you will really find, not just in LA, but in LA, New York, Chicago, the, the major metropolitan areas, the, the ones that are highly condensed um, and our, our big cities are getting more crowded, is uh-huh. that the, the manner in which we live and work, you know, especially with the gig economy, people are getting away from driving their own cars and, and traveling with Uber and Lyft. Um, we work spaces, and, and I believe you may have designed a co-working space. Um, yeah, I did. But because, due to the popularity of both co-working spaces and live workspaces, it seems like the, the way people are using design it has has fundamentally shifted again, and I'm curious if you're seeing that as well. You know, I I don't know if I can answer that. I don't see. I haven't. I don't think I've seen like major shifts in the way people are. You maybe I don't have a long enough career to have been like, oh, you know, five years ago people were asking this. Uh, you know what I mean? I do, I do. When when you were working on the East Side co working space, um, how did you approach that? Well, that was um, people I've worked with before. It was an old, it was a lot of times uh, we're working on top of old remodels. So it was like a 90s carpeted blech, mob, <laughs> you know. So, and, and you know, a lot of times people start a project and we're like, we're not really sure where this is going, but we know we want to do it like a, a we, we know numerous people will be working here and we we want it to look really good so that people will want to come work here. And that that is definitely like the driving force, I think, of a lot of people is like create something beautiful so that it draws people in and then we will figure out exactly what's going on here. <laughs> so a lot of, you know, a little bit more open. I've done numerous co-working spaces that have been like a little bit open-ended, but just create something very interesting to draw the people in and then and then we'll fill the space up. Um, so anyway, that, that place, we, a lot of times I start with just some white walls and cut out, you know, ugly stairwells and weird, any weird curvy things, add a bunch of more windows. Let's rip out the kitchen, take out the uppers, especially if you're doing co-working space, you know, let's delete a lot of the unnecessary stuff and, uh, get a little fresh, fresh slate going and then, and then see what style you guys are looking for. Did you did you find that you had to change the approach to design because now instead of designing for an individual or a family or a you know a group of partners for a specific office that you have to do something that is I don't want to call it generic but something that 
could appeal to just about everyone because it is a co-working space. It's it's fairly transient in nature, and you'll have people coming and going. Yeah, I would imagine that that has to change the manner in which you think about design. Yeah, it really does. But I think that I really love parameters. And so no matter what project I'm working on, I try to create a soul behind it. And soul seems a little dramatic, but I try to create some sort of human behind what I'm designing so that I'm not creating some generic thing because that isn't interesting. So like even I just try to grab at straws and I create a really strong creative direction. Like these are the three words we're going for here. And these are, these are the textures and the shapes that we're going for. And I, you kind of just have to make it, make up somebody. Kim Armstrong is a designer out of Dallas. She is fearless with color, surgical in her blending of materials and styles. I became familiar with Kim's work through a friend in Dallas who is also a designer. When one designer tells me that I have to check out the work of another designer, that's a suggestion to which I cannot say no. And I'm glad that I followed up because our conversation was fun, colorful, and I think you're going to enjoy this. Kim Armstrong is amazing. Uh, and this was from episode number five of Lone Star House of Design. What the staff? I have no idea. What, I mean, I just, I just say that because I hear other people have. Oh, it. oh, I have, oh. I have okay. one office person, but yes, I mean, but yeah, I like am constantly learning and so much of my time is just not even designing. It's, you know, learning about what's coming and being inspired by the changes in technology. So it's really just, it's, it's interesting to see, I mean, I don't want to think of myself as old, but I used to develop film when I used to go to right? a client's house yeah. and take photos and have to develop the film. And, you know, oh, you got it in the Walgreens one hour and you get it the same day. And that was pretty cool, you know. But, and now it's like you're out, you can instantly take a photo and email it. And that technology is, you know, older, but that's just how it's changed from developing film to this you know, platforms and just, you know, online and just the the whole w way that technology has changed the business of design, not only on the designer side, but also on the consumer side. It's just really fascinating. Well, it is. And, you know, I'm, I don't know why I'm surprised by this, but design in particular, interior design, so slow to adapt to new technologies. Right. And I don't, I, I don't understand. Do you get that? Do you understand why that is? Yeah, I think um, part of it, that I, I think, as a designer, right, you, you take on a project and it's, it's a development process for the designer. And I think that they're so involved in the art of what they do that, and it's a, it's, tedious and it's long hours and people don't realize how much work is involved. But by the end of the day, there's not that much left into as far as how do I, you know, cause a lot of us are small and how do, how do I grow my business? How do I use technology as an advantage in my business? Does that make sense? Well, no, it makes perfect sense. By the way, I think it's funny that you said design as they, I think with they not, <laughs> you know, you're part of that, right? <laughs> Yeah, I'm a part of that. <laughs> but I, but I have, I'm a part of that. Um, 
for sure. I mean, a hundred percent. I mean, I'm, I work 12, 14 hour days almost every week. I'm pulling up a 12, 14 hour day. Um, and by the way, and, I, I have a question for you. Sure. How many hours do you plan to work every day? How many hours do I plan? Yeah, on yeah. Working? So I have a, I have a. It's really interesting. After doing the show for, after doing Confo by Design for as long as I have, and talking to designers as much as I have, I have found that, on average, designers, architects, creators in this space wind up spending about one hundred and fifteen to one hundred and twenty percent of the amount of time doing the work that they've actually allocated for it, which means... Oh, 100%. Yeah, which means you lose... We get paid less than what we think we're going to get paid. Well, you're making less, but it's also, even more importantly, it's taking time from the other things, you know, the me time, the you time, the yoga, the kids, the family, the trips, the dog, you know, walking the dog, whatever it happens to be. 100%. Right? And I think, um, you know, I've been on this quest to... One of the things is to try to figure out why that is and how to make it easier. And I'm curious, what would make, what would make it easier for you? Well, um, well, I, I have, um, I have a solution. I, and I, and I don't want to spill too much because I'm, I'm in the process and not many people know this, but I'm in the process of developing something to overcome that, um, for a lot of designers. Um, I think the the thing that would overcome that is making your business scalable, right? Being able to make money when you're not working. I mean, that's the idea, but how do you do that in the design world, right? Um, I think I have a solution and I don't want to divulge too much because I'm in the process and it's, it's a platform-based business and it's not just for me, but it's for other designers as well. And similar to, I don't want to say modsy because that to me is not design, um, but something like that. And so that is, I think, the wave of the future of design. I don't think that the one-on-one personal design for elite high-end clientele is ever going to go away. I think that will always, always be here. But I think being able to take your designs based on your brand that you have built and the followers that you've built digitally and people that didn't think that you were accessible, you can now be accessible for. And I think that that is a wave of the future. Does that make sense? It makes, it makes perfect sense. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just bummed that all I get is a tease, but that's okay. But that's okay. We'll, we'll fix it. You'll come back. We'll fix this. In the we mean- will, we will, and when I'm ready, to, I will need you because you you know a lot of designers, and they will want to be a part of it because that's the thing, right? Like, how do you continue to hold a high level of design product, right? Like a high um, product that you can put your name on and that you're proud of, but be able to get it out in a way and in a format that is scalable. Yeah. So I think yeah. that that's that's the big question. I think that hopefully I can finalize all the details and build it. But I think that that would be a great way for designers once they have met, come to that level where they have a large following, and that they then they can 
make money as they sleep. Totally agree. Totally agree. I, and you know what's you know what's really um, fun for me is I I started Lone Star House of Design because I've been doing convo by design for a long time and because I have roots in Texas. And right. Texas is one of those places where you have this combination and intermingling and mixing of wide open spaces, disposable income, yes. immense creativity, and a, an extremely independent attitude. Right. And and great I, resources at our fingertips. That's very true. That's very true. And um, I think that it's been really fun so far talking to creators like you uh, about the state of Texas in, the, sorry, the state of design in Texas. Tell me about, tell me about Dallas. Tell me about design. When did, when did you get started? Oh, when did I get started? Um, I think I got started in 2001. And, um, and I, I got my degree in your design, um, kind of by default and, um, De- by deep, by default, did you just go default. in, you went into yes, the wrong class? How, did the, how does that happen? No, almost. almost. <laughs> so the story with that is that I was a major athlete growing up. I mean, my life was athletic. So I did all the sports. Um, I got many scholarships to many schools. I ended up playing soccer and volleyball in college. And so sports is my deal. So I thought the natural path would be for me to go into kinesiology, right? It just makes sense. Of course. And I was in anatomy for, I think I was in anatomy for three classes. And I went, I was just like, I can't, there's no way. I'm not interested in it. I'm not passionate about it. And I didn't really know what I wanted to do. But what I did know is that I wanted to do something that I would wake up every day and get excited about. And I always had a creative side to me, but it never shown like the shining object because I was such an athlete. So I literally, my, I went to my um, student, you know, academic advisor and I said, I've got to, I've got to drop all these science classes. It's just not me. And I've got to redefine my uh, major. He's like, well, what do you want to do? I'm like, I have no idea. Like, or is it called a syllabus? So they have all the classes yeah. listed. And do the cor- like a course catalog. Like a course catalog. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And this is old school, right? Yeah. And so, because this is the ni- 1990s. And so um, I went home and I literally like flipped through every section. And there were some, I'm like, I'm definitely not in the science section. So I just skipped that whole section. And I was like, business. And then it's all into the arts. And I was like, okay, fashion, I'm not really fashionable. And so I was flipping, drawing, painting. Yeah, that'd be cool, but can you really make a living? And I know people do, but that was what, I mean, I'm okay artist. I'm not great. And so I fell into interior design and I, was, and I was reading through the course load and I was like, yeah, that sounds interesting. That sounds interesting. And I literally took it because I'm like, I know I can pass college. I know I can pass because this sounds interesting. I think I can develop a liking for it. And then I'll decide what I want to do when I grow up. <laughs> and so, so anyways, I started taking my courses and I loved it. Like I would stay up, I think I stayed up three nights in a row one time just working on projects. And I wasn't bitter about it. It wasn't, I was like, I am so lucky. I am not studying bones. Like I am so lucky. And so I would just stay up and um, work on my projects and do my art. And I just, I loved it. And so anyways, I came out and 
you know, got my first job at a retail store where they promised that you would be a designer and do nothing but you just sell furniture. And I hated it. Right. And oh, it, was, it was miserable. And so I thought, well, I'm going to start my own business. You know, I think I was 24 when I declared I was going to start my own business. And I knew nobody. Like, I didn't know anybody. I didn't have any money. I think I started, I put two, I start. I like, I need a business bank account. So I took $200 because that's what I, I could have. And that's what I felt I could, could afford. And I put it in my bank account. I'm like, I'm going to start my business with $200 and a laptop computer. And that's what I did. And I just went out there and pounded the pavement and, you know, it grew and grew and I learned a lot. And so now I have pretty, I mean, I'm busy every day now. So I'm very fortunate and very grateful. But that, anyways, that's kind of the story, which is a little bit unusual. I wish it was more romantic, you know? Well, it, what's interesting is that everyone has their own path. And what yeah. what is also really fun is that when I talk to designers or design enthusiasts, you know, here in Los Angeles, be it either coast, LA, New York, right. apparently no design happens between the West Coast and the East Coast. Did you know that? Yeah, that's what I heard. You know, that's- <laughs> <laughs> apparently nothing happens. And right. I, I am, I am, I, that is not true. And so that's kind of why I wanted to put a spotlight on design in the great state of Texas. Now, you're in Dallas. Yeah. And Dallas, I, I, have, a, I have a strong affinity for, for Dallas. I spent, what, nine, nine years in Dallas, two tours, two different tours. I was in radio at the time. And okay. what's really interesting about, about Dallas is Dallas has an, has an attitude. And Dallas wants to be cool. Dallas has has forever kind of been in the shadows of the old money of Houston and the and the the historical sort of presence of Fort Worth. But Dallas has always kept plugging away and always, you know, there's just sort of a it's a it's a bright shining star. No, no pun intended, really. Right. But <laughs> but what I what I love about Dallas is. It's, it reminds me of Los Angeles on a much smaller scale, that depending on what part of town you're in, the feeling and the style and the design really does change, change. which is really yeah. cool. When I left there the last time, which was in um, 2003, there was still a, a great deal of... Wait, no, sorry, 2006. It was, it was on the verge of, of major transformation. When I got there the first time, Everything was brick. I, to to some degree, everything still is brick. Brick is is a prevalent material, right? In Texas, probably because it's so plentiful and because it it withstands weather. And but I also see so much else happening. Do, what do you think about the transition in Dallas w- with regard to style? Well, that so you so you left in two thousand and six. Yeah. So. That was what in the height of the whole Tuscan era in Dallas, right? <laughs> yes, is that right? Yeah. <laughs> yes, think. yes. That was yes. So, so we have moved. Luckily, we have moved past and beyond that, right? And which is just great. But yeah, I think that you're seeing a lot more variety. You know, modern is um, really taking off in Dallas now. I know that California, I think, is 
probably a good three to five years, maybe more ahead of Dallas. Um, cause I follow a lot of, um, you know, designers on social media and stuff in California, but modern is, is definitely huge, but I think Dallas also has such strong traditional, I don't know, I don't want to say lifestyle, but you know, it's kind of got that Southern feel to it still. And so you still, so a lot of people still gravitate towards traditional. So I think that you see kind of a mix of modern and um, traditional, kind of a fresh new traditional as well. And then you have all the different um, pockets in Dallas, you know, you have your English tutor in Lakewood and um, you have kind of in, um, Forest Hills kind of have your artsy, uh, modern meets eclectic. So, so I think it's kind of all over the map, which is kind of interesting, but we definitely, it was during your period was so stylized. Everything that was going up was Tuscan in feel. I yeah, think. no, it, it's true. But what's interesting about, about the city of Dallas and I, and when I say Dallas, I don't talk about the Metroplex and I don't talk about Dallas and Fort Worth and Arlington. I talk about Dallas in particular. Because right. one of the things that makes me absolutely crazy when people come to L.A. and they talk about Los Angeles as, it, as if it was one city, <laughs> which it is not. We're 45, 46 different boroughs. Dallas is very much the same way, but what's really, or the Metroplex rather, but Dallas in particular, sure. was I kind of feel like the city was in its adolescence in the 70s. The Dallas Cowboys seventies, right? You know where, you know what I'm saying? Where the, yes. the, you know, the TV show was out. The Dallas Cowboys were on top of the world, and that's kind of like where where the attitude was set for right. the, for the city. And so, there's always been this experimental. You know, the music scene in Deep Ellum has always been strong. The, yes. The 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 Highland Park area, you know, I lived on the M streets for a little while, and it just, okay, what a special place that is, and that is amazing. It is still is. What's that? It still is too. It's the M streets are just fantastic. Oh yeah, it's so you know, and every everyone probably has a story like this, but my wife and I we were renting a house. It was um, what year was it? It was probably nineteen ninety six or seven and we were renting a house on Vickery and okay. Vickery is right in the middle of the M streets for those, you know, who, who may be out of town, not listening to this. The M streets are really interesting. It's the other side of the freeway from Highland park, which is Highland park is where SMU is. It's just, it's where it's where all, where all the money in Dallas lands. And that's just, it's old money what? and it's been there forever. But the houses are huge. The schools are fantastic. It's just, right. it, it's the place everyone, it's an aspirational city. It is. And the M streets across that are between that and Greenville, which is just a, a fun-loving street that runs from downtown to old parts of North Dallas. And this house was, it was a two-in-one. It was like 800 square feet on a, on a third-acre lot. I mean, it was a huge lot. And we were renting it, and they wanted to sell it for $88,000. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And we, my wife and I, oh, that's, why would, it's too expensive. Why would we buy this when we can go to Valley Ranch and, and build a brand new home? 
And so that's what we did. And it, t- it turned out right. fine. It turned out fine. But I still think about that house on Vickery uh, all the time. Just, yes. Was it an older home? With it was. Porch and, yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it was. Yeah. And I'm sure it's not there anymore, but it was, a, it was a fun place to be and living down there at the time. But that's, that's the thing that I think most people who are from outside of the area don't realize is that Dallas is heavily steeped in jazz and music and the arts. The, the culture scene, the arts, the museums, the Nasher, I mean, everything that you have in the city right now, it, Dallas is a remarkable modern cosmopolitan city. And I'm curious to see how the, um, how the design and architecture has changed with it. And a lot of, a lot of the projects that you work on, a lot of the projects that you have worked on, is sort of explore all of the different elements. You talk about modern, um, and I, I see that from some of your work, like your Lake Highlands mid-century. When did, when, right. did, when did you finish that project? So I finished that project, I want to say a year and a half ago, possibly two years, two, two to a year and a half ago. The pictures, and, that, the pictures that I see, I'm looking at the kitchen, and yeah. and it it looks open concept, but you're also you've got this really hearty blend of of materials, uh, terracotta floors, yeah, and big open kitchen. When you're putting this together, did did your clients just say, you know, do what you want with this, or did they give you direction? No the the clients gave us direction by what the house was giving us direction. If that makes sense, so yeah. The ter- the terracotta floors are somewhat original. Um, originally had terracotta floors. We added terracotta floors. And because they were hand-done and because they were done so long ago, it was really hard to get a good match. But I love the fact that this this particular client was so interested on in keeping the integrity of the home because it is a mid-century modern home. And, but it it didn't have all the updates in the luxuries that we appreciate today, right? Like a big open kitchen and luxury appliances and um, that kind of thing. But yeah, so we kept the, um, the floors, the, the wood in the windows was stained. Um, As you can imagine, the terracotta floors and all wood stained paneling, that's how this house was and felt. And so we, we utilize a lot of what the house was already telling us and the floor plan drastically changed, but we wanted to infuse some of those modern elements with the um, existing structure of the house. Studio 1025 is the Dallas-based firm owned and operated by Abby Fenimore. Abby has earned a reputation for her playful style and unique colors and unique interiors. She has earned the nickname Queen of sorority houses. Uh, I've never before spoken with a designer who specialized in sorority houses. I can tell you, having lived in a fraternity myself, college housing can take some serious abuse. Abby has figured out how to preserve beauty and high performance. She applies these same ideas to her residential and office projects. Abby and I had a very cool chat about these and other issues that shape design and architecture in the great state of Texas. And I really try to stick to Texas. Um, I haven't been to a market in two years, and it was high point. And although I love it, what I found was the amount of money and time that I'm spending to do that 
it's so wonderful because you meet a lot of great people and there's connection and you're seeing things you don't always have access to. And I think it's great and important to do that and keep yourself current. But um, I also think too, like you said, Texas is rebellious and it's, you know, we can stand on our own. We can do what we want. You guys stay out of our business. Our state's great the way it is. <laughs> and that is, that is a very big part of, of this state. I will tell you, I mean, I'm originally from Arkansas, um, which is the neighbor just right over here to the East. But, you know, I love living here. And I think what's, what's so great about the design industry is that we have so many local resources as well. So I talked about going to High Point and having exposure to all these really new brands and cool trends, but we have a lot of that right here in our backyard. We have so many wonderful artists and furniture designers and creators and fabric designers and resources for having things made, right? So we're not having to say, well, I need to order from this vendor that is in North Carolina, which we do. Um, but we can go and get fabric printed here and custom furniture made here and unique um, art made here. So lighting, there's so many things too. And I think when you live in large cities like this, it continues to grow, like you said, having resources. So people want to set up shop. The economy is good. Let me start my own you know, lighting company or something like that that just takes off and it just becomes wonderful. And when you get that exposure, people in your home state want to support their own. So you see a lot of that too. And that's something I really try to support. I use a lot of local artists. I try to get a lot of my upholstery done here. Case goods are a little more challenging, but I'm even finding my clients, they don't want everything from China, Ikea, you know, those things have their place, but they're like, what can we get? I know it's a little more, but I love knowing that, you know, the majority of the pieces in my home are from an artist here in Texas or Dallas, or that someone made it in the United States. And that's, um, you know, you hear that made in the USA, made in the USA. And I really see that as a comeback in this industry, especially with tariffs. You know, I ordered some things the other day and it was like, oh, here's your order plus 8% on the tariffs because it's coming from China. I'm like, oh, <laughs> that's no fun. Um, so, you know, having things here locally really does help that as well. Yeah, I would imagine it does. Where do you where do you shop locally? What is the design scene like in Dallas? Is is there a central? I know you got market. How 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 strong is mark is the market center there? The design I mean, it's the design good. They yeah. So the World Trade Center, which is the big brown, I call it the upside down Lego building. Right. Um, and of course, the trademark, which is the glass white building next to it. You know, they house a lot of lighting and, um, of course, all of the main furniture vendors and manufacturers that you would expect to see. And some of them are kind of grouped in multi-line showrooms. But I say that it's kind of making a little bit of a transition. And that building is old and um, the whole first floor now has been gutted and redone and it is absolutely amazing some of the really nice showrooms have moved down there so they're kind of making it a little bit more of a place to go and a destination versus walking through across the old building which helps. <laughs> it does right? and then of course the cross i-35 we have the you know design district which is amazing i'm literally down there all day um when i go down there and it's so easy i literally live about 10 minutes i jump on the tollway and pop down there so you have a lot of smaller showrooms that, again, like I said, carry local artists and they custom label or private label their own furniture pieces. And there's just a really great opportunities to find things down there now that we didn't have before. A new restaurant. So not only can you go down there and go to showrooms, you have a reason to stay, right? So you're able to socialize and go to events easily because it's all right there now. And it's just, it's a wonderful place. I, I'd say for the almost 11 years that I've been doing this in Dallas, 
the past two or three years, you've really seen so much growth and transition in those areas. And it's great. Again, great for our industry. And I think it's that driving, you know, the economy is really driving that. And um, also too, and we can get on this subject later, but it's that really weird mix of shopping retail versus trade only. And that's kind of been something that's changing in our industry, but I think they do a good job of balancing that, make everyone feel welcome and um, I guess secure when you're shopping down there in regards to pricing and your profit and markups and things like that. Yeah, I want to ask you about that. How how do you manage that process? Because I, I will tell you what I have found over the years, increasingly so, is designers get shopped. Um, you you get shopped, and the the trades don't necessarily stay true to designer exclusive pricing the way that they once did. Where they they'll you know if someone comes in and, and asks for it, many times they'll 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 give it. Um, which has always been such a, a huge part of of the designer based economy, the way that you price, the way that you charge, the way that you the way that you earn for what you do, because oftentimes the the design service itself you can't it's you can't attach a dollar value to creativity. I mean you can, but oftentimes people won't understand that. So, you know, the markup has been a has been a a safe source of revenue for designers, but that's, that's changed so dramatically. How, how do you, how do you manage with that, that constantly changing process? When I first started my business, I made so many mistakes in regards to that. And the biggest one is not educating my clients. And I don't really think it matters what your client price point or budget is. You do the same thing I do when you want something you research it or you check your options because you want to find the best price or the best deal. And so being able to shop trade versus retail has been a little bit of a sticky subject. So I think it's just important to really be transparent with how you want to run your business and what kind of relationship you want to have with your clients. So I've really had to, God, it's it's hard because no, you know, I'll tell people this the first time I meet them. Look, we're going to be around each other. I'm around your family we're talking about your money. I'm in and out of your home. We've got to have trust. And this is how I make a living. And I don't think there's anything wrong with saying that to someone, you know, this is how I make a living, but I'm not going to sell you something to make an extra couple hundred dollars or a thousand dollars here. That isn't right for your home just because of that. So no, when you tell me a budget, I need you to be honest because that's going to dictate what I'm bringing to you in your design. Right? So if you're really worried, if you have, I'm just making a number, if you have $50,000 to spend, but you tell me you have 20, you're going to get a design that looks like 20, not 50, right? So it's letting them know, look, let's just be honest with it. Now, in regards to shopping, I have that conversation as well. What do you want out of this? Do you want full service? I will be shopping at places. Now, I can't even say this anymore, that truthfully, that are trade only because they will sell trade and they sell retail. Right. But what I do tell them is when it makes sense, and I'm getting 50% off and I'm marking it up 25%, you're still saving, you're still getting it at a better price. And it's a resource that you may not have otherwise found or had access to. So I'm bringing you to things other than, oh, let's just go to Z Gallery in West Elm. There's nothing wrong with those stores. I love them and I use them as you know a resource often. But you know, how elevated do you want your home? Where are you really at? And that doesn't always work for everyone. Some people want more unique things. Some people just want someone to do it because they don't know how to do it themselves. But what <laughs> I charge a, I charge a larger retainer up front and I'm very upfront with my fees because you will, and I learned this the hard way and I haven't had it happen in years, but 
you'll come up with your design and you're just charging them by the hour. And then they're like, yeah, I'm good with it. And they go do it on their own or they'll turn around and I'm going to talk to you like you're in trouble. Man, what a waste of money. You did nothing. I could do this on my own. And I'm really? like, well, of course you can do it on your own. You have it in your hand. Of course you can do it on your own. Um, so of course I had a lot of issues with that and learn the hard way starting out and really young. And, um, another thing too, that kind of goes hand in hand with this. I think it's really important for our community to be friends with each other. There's nothing wrong with helping someone else with a resource or a problem or a situation. And there, when I started a ton of designers, they were just like, no, absolutely not. Figure it out on your own. I'm not helping you. And it wasn't that I was saying, tell me how to run my business and what to do, but it was, Hey, I had this issue. What do you do? You know, just being able to have open dialogue and conversation. Um, but yeah, I have my little crew of designers here and um, we text each other and keep in touch and grab a drink here and there or lunch. And I think it's really important for our industry because like you said, our clients are changing. So how do we best provide that service to them, but still make a great living? And what we've all kind of talked about is, look, you've just got to figure out what works for you as a business. This is how I make a living. Again, it's a tangible item when you're selling a design until it comes to buying something. So these are my ideas, my thoughts, my hard work and labor of love that I'm putting into your home. So it's important that they are in that with you and that they're not (laughs) taking the wheel and controlling that project. Um, They're hiring you for a reason. So you have to stand your ground without being rude or disrespectful, but they've got to kind of be a part of that too. And, you know, I've had... uh, only one client ever that I've fired that was completely hateful to me. And um, same thing. They were seeing the design and were like, well, I can do this on my own. This is ridiculous. You work for me. And I'm like, well, actually I work with you. So how about you not disrespect <laughs> me like that? And yeah. let's back up a second. Yeah. Um, and it's also learning to judge what works for you. So I think that's why meeting and really talking to someone about what their expectations and wants are will save you all of that shopping behind your back issue. And, you know, I have contracts with people that we sign and, you know, that does protect you. And it's, it's gotten me out of a lot of sticky situations. But, um, you know, a couple of my good friends that I've helped with things, they're like, oh, my gosh, how do you do your job? I literally ordered four pieces and I want to pull my hair out. There's back orders. There's delivery issues. It's broken. What do I do? And I'm like, yeah, and that's part of the service and fee that we provide. So, again, it's educating your client on how you work and what your expectations are so that when you learn what theirs are, you guys can figure it out together. And that's been really successful for me. Um, I have two clients right now that are repeat or that I've worked with them three and five years ago. And one's now married and the other one and their family growing and they're moving into a new home. And that is the biggest compliment. That is the best when you can know that that person loved and trusted what you did and they're coming back to you. And they understand your process and they get your value. And so that's what I focus on. So I'm very particular who I work with because there's got to be a friendship and a trust. And that does take time to build. But, um, you know, the shopping behind the back thing, that's hard. It's kind of like cheating. <laughs> I tell them that. <laughs> you're cheating on me. Um, just be honest and tell me what your concerns are. And a lot of times they don't know how to communicate that. Right. So they'll have sticker shock and they'll freak out. So they'll start shopping. Well, Hey, I found this chair for $50 less a chair. Well, that's great. But that's not what you told me you wanted. Um, you know, and then you have to kind of address across that bridge at that point and see how you want to handle it. But a lot of showrooms too are very sensitive to that. 
which I respect as well. And, and I'm honest with my reps. I'll tell them, look, here's my situation with this person. You're more than welcome to disclose this or say it. And I don't hide my pricing anyway. Um, I don't hand everyone over my invoices, but if someone really doubted what I was saying or charging them, I would have no problem showing them that because that's their money and that's an agreement that we have. So getting into a whole new subject with designers, I, I mean, I have heard horror stories of people who work with designers who say, well, I'll charge, I'll charge what I want. They don't really disclose it. And so they're like, wait, so this fabric was a hundred a yard retail. And I know they paid half that, but I paid two fifty a yard. Like what? Why would you do that for, to me? I'm like, well, because she feels like she can, I guess. And that's a conversation we didn't know to ask. So yikes. But, um, yeah, and retailers are tough, too, because they're trying to be so... And you know how it is. Everyone's a designer now, right? Every fashion blogger is now a design person, and they're, you know, selling influencer things on reward style. I'm like, no, and they're like, oh, I love your bed. I love your rug. And they're all of a sudden a designer. And, you know, I don't have a problem with that. I say the more the merrier, but um, it really does change people's perspective when working with a designer. They think you're HGTV, and you're going to shake out a rug, and the room's going to snap and come together immediately. <laughs> and that's, that's another issue um, we could spend hours talking about. But, you know, it all kind of feeds into itself and it's one big complicated situation. So you just really have to know what works best for you. And for me, that's just being honest and having uncomfortable conversations because once you get that out of the way, you know, like right now I have a client, she's like, I found this rug here. I really love it. And, you know, then you have to just say, okay, well, this is, and, and then the retailer's giving a better discount than they give the designer. So the retailers, I feel like, kind of cross. So you either become kind of a higher-end designer so that you are more trade accessible, or you kind of have that mix, which I tend to have a lot of the mix because not everyone's going to spend $3,000 on a side table that I work with, and that's okay. Um and sometimes you just have to do what you have to do. But if I only get 20% off, that's what I charge my client. I'm not going to, you know, rip them another 10 or 15% because I just don't think that's ethical. Well, so that, you know, <clears throat> keeps them in line there. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because I had a, I, I've been doing these small gatherings here in Southern California for about a year and a half now. Um, we, I hold them at showrooms and I have 10 designers at a time. And it's sort of in two parts. The first part is uh, a roundtable discussion. I record it, but I don't attribute any of the commentary to any particular designer who's in attendance. I just sort of give gen I write up general and do the podcast on general ideas that came out of that. And then I record certain segments, uh, three to five minutes with the individuals about individual for consumer topics. But what's really interesting, and to your point, the roundtable discussions all have to do with the business and sort of everything that you just mentioned, everything that you just talked about has come up in these. So what, what's really interesting to me is these are not unique issues. They're not unique to Texas. They're not unique to Southern California. They're not unique to New York. They're happening in the industry where, mm -hmm. where the industry exists. And I think um, it's really interesting to me because the trade has sort of taken a different philosophy that we are going to do business in, in for business sake, you know, whether they're designers or whether they're consumers. I think it's short-sighted um, 
because to work directly with the trade, you as a designer, you may have 15 projects a year. And to do 15 whole homes a year, plus clients that will have, you know, other other projects because they buy, you know, they'll buy a, a hill country house or they'll buy another house somewhere else and they'll bring you in to design it as opposed to just working with one client one time giving a discount. That one homeowner that, that they give a, a designer discount to is going to go home, take pictures of their space, put it on social media. They're going to source the, the, the product and the company and they're probably going to price it, telling their friends what a great deal they got in many cases. It just seems like it's so counterproductive. Um, I mean, I get the need to sell, right. but I'm curious, do you find the trade getting better or do you find it going the other way? Yeah, it depends on the day you ask me. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it is, it's, it is a real problem. Um, and I guess what I'm try- what I always try to figure out, and I, like you said, I can't quite, it is a business issue, right? It's our livelihood and that's how we make a living. But we've got to get smart just as technology changes and consumers' mindsets and their access to things change. So I kind of look at it as both. I mean, if you choose to sit around and be old school, which is great, and I totally get that if that works for you, then you're going to have a less you're going to have less opportunities to expand and grow your business and change your clientele or keep your clientele. Now, I personally chose to get on board with how everything's going. And you find different ways, unfortunately, to make a living, whether it be collaborating with a furniture manufacturer so that you can have a different source of income and profit in your business, or um, whether a lot of designers now, even in Dallas, they have their design business now in an online store or, you know, brick and mortar. So everyone's trying to figure out, hey, what's the best way to kind of avert this crisis of, oh my gosh, you know, retail taking over or clients being their own designer and so then you have to say, well, I have to make myself valuable. What makes me worth them investing in me? And, you know, you either figure it out or you don't. Um, I personally choose to be happy in my business. I love what I do. I feel like my style is my own. Um, do I think I've created anything different that hasn't happened before? No, but you know, everything comes from something. But I love what I do and I love color and pattern and I attract those people. And I've worked very hard to get my business and my aesthetic where it is. And I feel if you look on my website and you know me, you have a very clear idea of what I do. So that's the first step, getting people that come to you who are attracted to what you're doing and want to partake in that. You want them to feel like you've got it all taken care of. And again, it goes back to that transparency and confidence. It really can change the way your business works. And I just chose to take some of that bad with the good and, you know, accept it, you know, not everything to the trade is going to sell just to me, but I know that I'm 99.9% going to be working with a client or I'm working with a client who's not going to go behind my back. And that showroom rep is not going to sell behind my back. Thank you, Anne, Kim and Abby. That was fun. Amazing. And I really appreciate the time. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe to the show so you can catch every episode of Lone Star House of Design and Convo by Design everywhere you find your favorite podcasts. You can also follow along convobydesign.com and at convobydesign with an X on Instagram. For show inquiries, sponsorship, and guest inquiries, email me, convobydesign at outlook.com. Be well, and until next week, keep creating. 